If you read it without any word of introduction, it's a bit like parachuting into a foreign land and you've just got nowhere to find your bearings from. And it's pretty confusing. I mean, you look down the third line there, the, the word is Maha Shalal Hashbaz. You're like, what on earth is going on? So um, let me give a word of introduction, then Katie will read and we'll find our bearings and then I shall preach. One of the big questions throughout the book of Isaiah, this big book that we're in this little series looking at, is in an insecure world, to whom can I turn for security? Or when life is out of control, to whom can I turn for control? And here in, in this passage, we, we, we come across a definitive answer from the God of the Bible, the God of the universe, and we come across the answer through the lens of a king, King Ahaz, who is completely floundering on that question. He doesn't have a clue about whom he should turn to when life feels out of control. And then things get more encouraging in chapter 9. Before we look at the detail of this passage, I thought I'd give a brief little introduction to the whole book of Isaiah and just say a few things. The first thing is that Isaiah is a really big book in all sorts of ways. Firstly, it just is physically big. If you've ever tried to read it from beginning to end, it has 66 full chapters. And um, even within one of those chapters, it can be quite confusing that the sort of horizon and what's in view seems to sort of switch and swap around, and it can be quite, quite difficult to deal with. It's a big book. But it's also a big book in its scope as well, in the kind of scale of it. And the best illustration I could come up with to help us understand that is um, that of a pinhole camera. If you've ever used a pinhole camera, I remember a physics lesson in GCSE physics where we, we, we were shown a pinhole camera. And the way it works, you look through a very small hole, in fact a pinhole, funnily enough, a small aperture, and through that small narrow hole you can see a wide vista beyond. That's the thing you're going to be taking a photograph of. And in the book of Isaiah, we're looking, as it were, through a very narrow hole. We're looking at a very particular, almost obscure part of Israel's history. You might think it's quite just irrelevant. Very, very small hole. But as we look through it, as we read this book, we, we have our eyes uh, feasted on a vista beyond, which we find is deeply relevant to us. If you know the book of Isaiah, the scale of it is huge. Chapter 1, verse 2, um, Isaiah beckons heaven and earth to listen to the message. So he wants a big audience to listen to what he's about to say. And then in chapter 66, we have the new heavens and the new earth being inaugurated and, and created. In other words, what looks like a very particular message ends up being universal and eternal in its scope. It's deeply relevant for us, and I hope it's going to be a really thrilling series as as we go on for the next few weeks. But now, looking at this passage here, chapters 8 and the beginning of chapter 9, we need a little bit of a history lesson to understand it. So if you're sitting comfortably, then I'll begin. Are you sitting comfortably? In quite comfortable chairs. The story begins with the split of the kingdom of Israel. You may know that happened after the end of Solomon's reign, and the split was between the northern um, tribes, many more of them up the north, then the southern tribe of Judah, and then Benjamin as well. The northern tribes are called Israel or Ephraim, sometimes in Isaiah. Southern tribes called just Judah. So that's your kind of key and key points for reading this passage. And one of the consequences of the split is that both nations were very vulnerable on a geographical, international, geopolitical level because they were just smaller, right? And um, the setting for this passage here is that two of the kingdoms to the north of little old Judah, 
decided to make a political pact with one another, Damascus and then Israel. Okay? They thought, we're going to be stronger together, we're going to be stronger together. And then they wrote a little uh, email to Ahaz, the king of Judah, and they said, do you want to be in on our pact? Because if it's a three-way pact, we're going to be even stronger. Ahaz politely declined, and they thought, well, okay, we'll invade you then. And we'll replace you with a puppet, more pliable king who's going to agree with us and kind of do what we say. So here's Ahaz in our passage, and Isaiah is speaking to him. And Ahaz has before him two choices in the light of the kind of political disaster on his boundaries. He's got tanks massing on the boundaries and enemy troops. They're about to be invaded, it looks like. He's got two choices. The first is this. He may make a pact with Assyria. It's a growing super state of the day, the biggest dog in town. It's the kind of USA or perhaps China of today's world. And he may make a political pact with them. Ask them to be the kind of big brother in the playground and protect him. That might be a common sense option. Or the second choice, which Isaiah is encouraging him to take, is very simply, and it may appear naive, very simply to trust God and to trust God's promises that they'll be kept safe. So our passage, chapter 8, is Isaiah speaking to Ahaz and basically saying to him, do not make a, a pact with Assyria. You've got to trust the Lord's promises. Does that make sense? Katie, come and read it to us. We're reading Isaiah chapter 8 and chapter 9 up to verse 7. The Lord said to me, Take a large scroll and write on it with an ordinary pen, Maha Shalah Hashbaz. And I will call in Uriah the priest and Zechariah son of Jeberechiah, as reliable witnesses for me. Then I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said to me, Name him Mahashala Hashbaz. Before the boy knows how to say my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the plunder of Samaria will be carried off by the king of Assyria. The Lord spoke to me again. Because this people has rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh and rejoices over Rezin and the son of Ramalia, therefore the Lord is about to bring against them the mighty floodwaters of the river, the king of Assyria with all his pomp. It will overflow all its channels, run over it, all its banks, and sweep on into Judah, swirling over it, passing through it and reaching up to the neck. Its outspread wings will cover the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Raise the war cry, you nations, and be shattered. Listen, all you distant lands, prepare for battle and be shattered. Prepare for battle and be shattered. Devise your strategy, but it will be thwarted. Propose your plan, but it will not stand, for God is with us. The Lord spoke to me with his strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow the way of this people. He said, Do not call conspiracy everything that these people call conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear, and do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. And he will be a sanctuary. But for both houses of Israel, he will be a stone that causes men to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. Many of them will stumble. They will fall and be broken. They will be snared and captured. 
Bind up the testimony and seal up the law among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will put my trust in him. Here am I and the children of the Lord and the children the Lord has given me. We are signs and symbols in Israel from the Lord Almighty who dwells on Mount Zion. When men tell you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged and, looking upward, will curse their king and their God. Then they will look towards the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For, as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is the word of the Lord. Shall we pray for help? I need it most of all. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, please would you be our teacher. Please would you shed your light on your clear word here that what our stubborn hearts find hard to understand would be made easy and would our wills be brought into line with yours. For your name's sake. Amen. If you're a note taker, um, I've put my headings as ever on the back of the uh, notice sheet, which you may have been handed when you walked in. I've got two main headings, and they are Ahaz the man and us, and then Ahaz the king and Christ, and then a couple of subheadings under the first, Ahaz the man. We're going to spend more time on Ahaz the man, so you may get to a stage where you think, oh golly, I've you know, got put supper on, when, at what time are we going to be released? But um, don't worry, the first point's longer than the second. Under the first point, we're going to look at three temptations that the king Ahaz faces, and he falls at every hurdle. And I think we'll find um, familiarity with his mistakes. So Ahaz the man and us. The first temptation he faces, I've called it this, common sense versus God's promises. Common sense versus trusting God's promises from verses 1 to 10. Now, let me be clear here. When I say common sense, I mean a godless way of thinking, a way of thinking which prizes reason 
above God's presence or intervention in the universe. That's what I mean by common sense here. Isaiah knows that Ahaz is torn between something that appears to be a common sense thing to do and trusting God's promises. As we've already heard, Ahaz is tempted to make a pact with Assyria. That just sounds like a common sense thing to do. If you were him, I reckon you'd probably consider that quite heavily. Just sounds kind of responsible, um, you know, just good planning for the future in terms of your nation. And Isaiah here is saying, no, don't forget God's promises. And so he gives him two quite scary signs in verses 1 to 10. The first sign revolves around his child. He goes to his wife, who's called the prophetess. They conceive and they have a son. And poor old him, he's not called George or Harry. He's called Mahar Halal Hashbaz. Is that right? Something like that. They don't choose the name because it's in the, in the top ten names. They don't choose the name because it's pretty or handsome. They choose the name because it's pertinent. It's carrying a message. It's a sign for King Ahaz. And if you look at your footnote, you'll see what it means. Quick to the plunder and swift to the spoil. And the point that Isaiah is making with his son here is, he's saying to Ahaz, you know Assyria with whom you're making that pact? They are going to plunder and invade Damascus and the northern territory of Israel. And in fact, one day they're going to plunder you. Please do not make the pact with Assyria. So that's his son. The second sign revolves around rivers. At verse 6 and onwards, you'll see there the gently flowing waters of Shiloh. Now, that was a, a pure little bubbling brook in the local area to Judah, and it represents here God and his help and his promises. But Isaiah is saying that um, Ahaz has rejected God. He's rejected that lovely little bubbling brook. You could take a nice drink from it, refreshing and so on. Instead, he's decided to go to the raging torrent Assyria. It's a picture of what the Assyrian army is going to do to them. Now Ahaz thinks that he can make a pact with this raging torrent of Assyria and Assyria, the big river, will just come gently to rescue them and then retreat afterwards back into its banks. But Isaiah says here, no, it's going to be a rerun of those Somerset floods two Christmases ago. The Assyrian forces are going to flood right into Judah and almost drown everyone up to their necks. Please don't make a pact with Assyria. Don't trust your godless common sense. Trust God's promises. And the thing is that makes it painful to read is that we know, if you know your history at all, if you've read Isaiah at all, we know Ahaz made the wrong decision. We just know it, he did. He made a pact with Assyria. And you know, if you read your history books, that Assyria, just a few years later were holding them in a choke-lock siege. They'd impoverished Judah, and they almost ripped Judah to the ground. In fact, later they were exiled, and we'll look at that later in the series. He made the wrong decision, which makes us wonder why. You know, Isaiah, he forewarned him, didn't he? Very clear. He even named his son to forewarn him. That's commitment to a message. And yet he still made the wrong decision. Why? But I want to say, let's be careful not to cast the first stone, because the temptation he faced is very similar to the one we face week by week, I think. Because the common sense option is so tempting. It's the world's way of thinking, and it very easily just dribbles into my way of thinking, and I dare say yours. 
The common sense option goes like this. I, I, I wonder what's going to happen in the future. I wonder what decision I need to make to make the future good for me. And you try and predict the future in that sense, and you, you, the common sense option treats the world as a closed universe. And we'll look at various factors that may have a bearing on the future. Maybe the forces of capitalism, let's say. Will the markets go up or down? Or the forces of weather, sunny or rainy? Or maybe the forces of culture or whatever you like. But certainly God is not going to affect the future. His promises don't play a part at all in the common sense way of thinking. And the rest of the Bible would tell us that is the definition of foolishness. Because God's promises always come true. He always comes good on them. He always fulfills them. So to write God out of the equation is to fail to complete the equation at all. It's to get the future wrong. And that's what Ahaz has done. And I find myself doing the very same thing again and again. It made me think of, you know, well-known Old Testament stories. Think of Noah. I don't know whether you saw the film. I didn't see it. But there he is. God promises to him there's going to be a flood. He's living in a landlocked place. What does he do? He builds a huge boat. What would you think of him if you were one of his neighbors? He's gone mad. What would he say to you? He would say, no, I'm trusting God's promises. And he always comes good on his promise. Not common sense, trusting God's promise. Think of Gideon. My home group looked at this um, a couple of weeks ago. Wonderful story. He's told to go and fight the Midianite hordes. There are tens of thousands of them. Judges 6. And God whittles away the number of soldiers in his army right down to 300 men. 300 men versus tens of thousands. And he still goes into battle with them because he trusts God's promise that he'll give them victory. And he does. Because God's promise always comes good. It's an amazing thing. It made me think, think of uh, the children's song we sung this morning with, with Timo. Um, Proverbs 3 verse 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Ahaz failed to do that. I think we often do. Second temptation Ahaz faces is this, common fears versus the fear of God. Common fears versus the fear of God, verses 11 um, to 15, if you have a look down. I'm going to read 11 to, to 13. They're so good. The Lord spoke to me with his strong hand upon me. You can imagine the Lord standing behind him, his hand on his shoulder with some heaviness, warning me not to follow the way of this people. He said, do not call conspiracy everything that these people call conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. Why? The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. Very powerful temptation, this one. Common fears versus the fear of God. People of Judah, a bit like living in the Ukraine at the moment, I suppose. They're looking at forces, tanks, infantry massing on their boundaries. And they're worried about being killed and overrun by these foreign nations, right? Damascus and Israel. And Isaiah rocks up. And what does he say? He says, don't worry. And you'd be thinking, if you're one of them, you'd be thinking, okay, pull the other one, Isaiah. Is this some kind of black humor? We might be killed. Imagine the conversation. Isaiah might reply, no, I didn't say don't worry. I just said, be careful whom you fear. Make sure your fear is rightly aligned. 
Did you see that in verse 13? The Lord Almighty, he is the one you are to fear. See, Ahaz is in danger of just following the common fears, what everyone else is worried about, rather than the Lord his God, whom he should fear. Incidentally, um, I don't know what you make of the command to fear the Lord. What do you make of that? In many Bible studies, people I've uh, been with, they say, but aren't we meant to love him? Doesn't he love us unconditionally? What's to be afraid of with him? Uh, the most helpful um, illustration I had of, of, of how, what it means to, to fear the Lord is uh, to think of how we treat the sea. If you run with me on this, treat the sea. So you think of the sea. We love the sea. Most people go on holiday near the sea. We kind of seek it out. We drive miles, fly even, to find the sea. We love it. And yet, we recognize it's much more powerful than us. Recognize there are riptides. Recognize it can kill. And so we're careful. And in that sense, we fear the sea. It doesn't take any enjoyment out of it. It's just a reverence and an awe. So, so Isaiah says, you've got to fear, fear the Lord. But Ahaz fails to do that. He makes the wrong choice again. But isn't it so easy to fall into that trap? Let me give you a little example that I was thinking of during the week about uh, how hard it is. Imagine that in your workplace as a Christian, you, um, you're, you're, you're made aware of uh, something that's just morally downright wrong in the way your business is being run. Or maybe a boss, maybe it's a person who's morally dubious. And as a Christian, your conscience is just demanding that you do something about it. You must speak up. But just as you're making that decision to speak up, what happens? Don't the fears creep in? The what-ifs? The consequences? What if I become known as a troublemaker? That'd be difficult. What if, even worse than that, I'm made redundant by making trouble with this? Isaiah says, do not fear what they fear. Rightly align your fears and fear the Lord your God. Trust him. It'll be okay ultimately with him. Or here's a very subtle twisting of that that I've found, and particularly for some of the younger ones amongst us, as we join a new workplace, you might call it the workplace carrot. And it goes like this. We're just delighted to have you on the team. And um, we think you can offer a huge amount to the company. We've been impressed with your first few months. Look, just take it from me. Just keep quiet. Just toe the party line. Don't cause trouble. Do what I say and get on with it. And I think there could be a real future for you with us. Actually, I think stick with us and you, you could go right to the top quite quickly. Just, just don't, don't rock the boat. You come across that? It's prevalent across all workplaces. I have to say the Church of England is not excluded. But it works on the same basis. What that person is saying to you is fear. You know, I could really mess your career up if you, if you do the wrong thing here. Fear. And Isaiah says to us, do not fear what they fear. Fear the Lord your God. He is the one who is holy. Fear him. And I love that, that next little bit in verse 14. And he will be a sanctuary. The sanctuary in the Old Testament was uh, in the temple. And if you were in danger, if someone had threatened my life, what I would do is sprint to the sanctuary. It's a place where I'm going to be protected, Teflon-coated from any danger. 
There's a lovely story in 1 Kings 1 where Abinijah, this guy who's in danger from Solomon of all people, he sprints to the altar, to the sanctuary. He holds the, the horns of the altar and he's safe. That is the place of safety when you're in danger. And it's a lovely picture here that we're to run to, not the altar, there is no altar anymore in the New Testament, but to run to the Lord, to run to the Lord our God. He's our strong tower. When we're tempted to fear the things that they fear in the workplace or wherever we are, run to him and his promises. He will keep us safe. Ahaz didn't do that. We often don't. The third, final temptation Ahaz faced. I've called it neo-spiritualism and God's testimony. Verses 19 to 22. 19 to 22. It seems, if you look at verse 19, that under Ahaz, there was something of a resurgence in what we would call the occult, or the dark arts, or Ouija boards, that kind of thing. And before we kind of are too quick to throw stones, I think it's understandable in a way when you're, when you're really up against it, you know, and you're, you're possibly looking death in the face, as they were in Judah at the time, often that kind of extreme situation pushes us to do things we wouldn't normally do. I think we'd all recognize that if we're honest. Anyway, it had pushed these people to go to the dark arts, Ouija board, the occult, and all of that. And they thought that in doing that, they were reaching for the equivalent of a pair of spiritual specsavers glasses so they could see more clearly and maybe get some guidance and get some comfort. But if you look at the way Isaiah, you know, in a barbed way, speaks about the outcome, he says they thought they were reaching for the specsaver glasses, spiritually speaking. They actually were reaching for a blindfold. Do you see, they wanted to see, but they ended up in darkness. Did you see the deep irony of verse 22? Then they will look towards the earth and see only distress and darkness. And those two last words of the chapter, utter darkness. It's a picture the Lord Jesus picks up to speak of the reality of hell. It's not to be trifled with. And Isaiah is wringing his hands. He's utterly mystified. If you look at what he's saying here, he's saying, why would you go to the dead to get counsel for the living? You are alive, aren't you? Go to the living God. Go to his testimonies, what he's fully revealed about himself in the Bible, in the scriptures. He's not hiding from you. Why are you hiding from him? And friends, I think it's not just Ahaz. When you're under the cosh, when you're fearful, I don't know what it's about, maybe there is a fear that you named when, uh, in your heart when Timo was saying, we need to name this before the Lord in our hearts as we sing. But when we're in those positions, isn't it very easy to be very slow to open this book here, God's testimony to us for our comfort and for our guidance? Sometimes it can be easy to try and shortcut that whole thing. It would be easier just to get a picture from the Lord that comforts me or a word from the Lord that's easy. Maybe this book just seems too difficult to get to grips with. Maybe the message that comes from it we just find too hard. But I've had to remind myself doing this preparation uh, to listen to Isaiah. No, to the law and to the testimony, to the Bible. That's where we need to turn for our guidance and for our comfort. So that's Ahaz the man and us, slightly depressing. I find looking at him is a bit like looking in a mirror, and I don't want to see what I see. But secondly and more encouragingly, Ahaz the king and Christ. This is verse, uh, chapter 9 and um, our typical Christmas 
text. Sometimes bad imitations make us long for the real deal. Sometimes bad imitations make us long for the real deal. So, for example, if you have been a staunch follower of Tesco's Basics orange juice and you catch even a whiff of Tropicana, you will always buy Tropicana, won't you, from then on? Imitations, the real deal. Uh, You have a fake Rolex, it runs slow, you pass that jewelers down the road, and if you can afford it, yeah, get that Rolex, the real one. The, the, The fake imitations make us long for the real deal. And the way the Old Testament points us to Christ is often in that way. It throws before us a lot of fake imitations. And then it makes us long for the real deal, Christ, the real king. And we've been hanging out in chapter 8 with Ahaz. And he is not the real deal. He's a fake imitation of a king. He doesn't do what the Messiah is meant to do. He is weak. He doesn't trust God's promises. He goes the wrong way again and again. And it makes you and I long, should do, for chapter 9. And for nine lessons and carols at Christmas. And for this reading. Because it brings us real concrete hope. Did you see the contrast between the two men, the Christ child and Ahaz? They're both in the line of David, chapter 9, verse 7. But everything Ahaz does badly, Christ does well. Ahaz will bring defeat, whereas this king will bring victory, verse 3. Ahaz brings war, but this one brings peace, verse 4. Ahaz brought poverty, but this one brings riches, verse 3. Ahaz brought spiritual darkness, but this one brings light, verse 2. And Ahaz was a man like us, but this one is a mighty, mighty God, verse 6. And even more than that, we know from the Gospels that Christ succeeded where we fail again and again. He succeeded where we fail So he never chose godless common sense over trusting his father's promises. Do you remember that? Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's up against it. Must have been filled with fear. We know he was sweating drops of blood. And he says, not my will, but yours be done. I trust that your way is the best way. And by his spirit, he enables us to trust his promises today, this week, however hard it might seem. He never chose common fears over the fear of his heavenly father. Do you remember this hard saying he said? Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And now by his spirit, he enables us to fear our heavenly father, rather as we would fear the ocean, in reverence and in awe. And finally, he never chose the kind of shortcut neo-spiritualism that we might be tempted to. He was a fan of the Bible. Do you remember from the very start when he was 12, he was found in the temple doing what? Being taught the scriptures. He loved it. Even when he was being crucified, so much so that did he know the scriptures that he quoted it. Everything he said on the cross was pure Old Testament scripture. On the road to Emmaus, to those two disciples, he was able, without a Bible study aid, to open all of the scriptures and explain to them why it was necessary that he should die and rise again. He was a man of the testimony of God. So as I close, he is the king Ahaz failed to be. 
And so back to that original question, in a time of insecurity, Ahaz was facing, no doubt we are in different ways, to whom can we turn? Is it not this man Christ? He is our sanctuary. His promises are safe. He always comes good on them. And if we're in any doubt about that, just think of one of the hardest promises he ever made. I'll be killed and I will rise three days later. Did he come true on that? Yes, he did. He's trustworthy. We can trust him. I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, we find it uncomfortable, I suppose, looking at Ahaz. You know better than we do that we reflect him. And we make all the wrong choices. And we struggle. But we we thank you for the real deal King Christ. We thank you for his light that he sheds. The understanding he brings. The victory he wins. Thank you for the peace and the riches that he will bring for us in the new creation. And we pray in the meantime, pray for this next week, that we would delight in following him, the real deal king. For Jesus' name's sake. Amen.